and this is TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A. It's our desire to look at questions by the lens of Scripture so that we can determine what we believe. We don't want to approach the Bible uh, trying to get it to back up what we already believe, but we want to find out what the Bible says so that we can know the truth. We are on a truth quest. Now, while you guys are loading up your questions, and if you have a question, write the word question before it or a question mark or a Q, and then write out your question and we'll get to them in order. It's good to see you guys. I hope you guys are blessed. Um, I hope you um, are having a good day. And uh, so we have a question already to go. And uh, this is, um, the question is, what would you say to someone who struggles with anger? So anger is a work of the flesh, right? Outburst of Outburst of wrath. And if you are an angry, seething person for whatever reason, and you've got a quick button, uh, it is the flesh. It's like anything else that you battle in the flesh. The way that you overcome it is to walk in the spirit. So the Bible says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That means that you endeavor to take every moment and to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit and not the influence of the flesh. The Bible also says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So as you delight yourself in God, your desires change. Because if you're delighting in God and you have some desire for an outburst of wrath, then, well, God doesn't want you to have that. So if you're gonna have the desires of your heart, when you delight yourself in the Lord, there's a change that happens. The sanctification of an individual becomes much stronger. The New Testament equivalent to that is in John 15, where it says, abide in him and let his word abides in you and you can ask for whatever you desire and it will be done for you. And so if you walk in the flesh, then you will not, if you walk in the flesh, then you're gonna have the deeds of the flesh but if you walk in the Spirit, you'll have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that's what you need to overcome an outburst of wrath. Or if you're just a person that is just angry all of the time, you walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. I know it sounds, it sounds simple and it sounds like maybe it's an oversimplification, but learning to walk in the spirit is not easy. You've got to really determine that you're going to do that. You repent from walking in the flesh and you tell God, I want to walk in your spirit every day. I want to interact. I want to be in the spirit when I'm driving. I want to be in the spirit when I'm in conversations. I want to be in the spirit when I'm disciplining. I want to be in the spirit uh, all of the time and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. All right, so thank you very much for your question. We're gonna go ahead and get to the questions for the day. Uh, we have a few of them here already. Uh, we have the first one from Debbie. Debbie says, greetings, Pastor Robert. God bless you and your family during this time of Thanksgiving. Ah, thank you, Debbie, I appreciate that, you too. Uh, we have another question here from Jari. So Jari says, hi, please explain the Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 that both you and your descendants may live. All right, Jari, good to see you. Hope you're doing well. Uh, let's go ahead and go to uh, Deuteronomy 30, 
verse 19, 30 verse 19. So let me get there and I'll go ahead and put it up on the screen for you. 17, 18, 19. All right, before I read it, I'll put it up. All right, and there we go. Uh, so in verse 19, it says, I call heaven and earth as witness again today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God with all um, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him. For he is your life and the length of days and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give to them. All right, let me just take a quick look at the context here. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and get you out of here so I can go back and look at the context. I think this is, um, uh, let's see, I think that they're, well, this is the De De Deuteronomy, so it's the second law, and he's giving them this choice over life and death in, uh, in to be able to live for him and being able to choose over life and death. So Jari's question is, hi, please explain the end of Deuteronomy 30 verse 19, that both your and you and your descendants may live. So God's giving them warnings against what he really knows that they're going to do. He knows that they're going to go into the land. This is the, the second generation, and this is the giving of the law to the second generation. The first generation has already been scattered in the wilderness because they refuse to go into the promised land through unbelief. And as Moses gives them this instruction, again, he says to them, I call heaven and earth as a witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Therefore, choose both life um, that both you and your descendants, choose life that both your, your descendants may live. So as they walk, go, go into it, the land, they establish the land, then they live and because of that, their descendants will follow in their footsteps. So I think that that's what God is saying. I don't think that he's saying, I don't think that this is covenant theology, the idea that when someone is a Christian, their children are automatically Christians as well. Uh, of course, they have to choose life as well. So let me go ahead and put it back up here on the screen and read it again. And I'll give you a couple of different ways that people read this, all right? I call heaven and earth as a witness against you and um, against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So the way that they read that is, if you choose life, then you and your descendants are going to be able to live. But there's no reason to think that he's not saying you and your descendants have to choose life, that both you and your descendants may live. It's like the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? Believe and be baptized, both you and your whole family, and you will be saved. So the whole, or you will be saved, both you and your family. The family has to believe and be baptized as well. It's just not the Philippian jailer who is saved. So these are the two passages that covenant theology will use to try to say that, um, that when an, an adult is saved, then his kids are saved after that. All right, so um, I hope that answers your question, Jari. I appreciate you, I appreciate your questions. Uh, so we have, let's see, we have, good to see you guys. We have a question here from TC. 
TC says, let me go ahead and, and take down, oh, that was a question from TC, not from Jari. Hey, good to see you, TC. <laughs> Thank you. Those blue, you know, YouTube backgrounds. Uh, get me. All right. So thank you, TC. I appreciate that. Um, we have a, a yeah, yeah, pastor's wrong. I'm TC1. Yep, I got that. I am wrong. All right. So now we have a question from Jari. All right. Thanks again, TC. Good to see you. Um, Jari, good to see you again. All right. This one really is from Jari. What if Israel had chosen Jesus? What would happen to the Gentiles? And had they just gone into the promised land? Thank you. Okay, what if Israel had chosen Jesus? What would have happened to the Gentiles? And had they just gone into the promised land? Thank you. Okay, so I don't understand the second part of that question, but let me answer the first part, and then I'll see if I can't cipher that out, um, Jari. Um, so had Israel had Israel chosen Jesus, had Jesus came unto his own and his own received him, that I think we would have something that would look different today than the church. But all along in the Old Testament, it had been said that God had chosen Israel to bless all nations and not just through the Messiah. Certainly through the giving of the Messiah, all the nations were going to be blessed. But it's more than that. It's also that God had chosen them that they would be a witness and a testimony to Gentiles. God all along wanted Gentiles to be saved. In Psalms 22, in the middle of this psalm, and it's, it's a fantastic psalm, it's crucifixion a thousand years before crucifixion was invented, and it's actually Jesus on the cross. Go, go and read it. You'll be able to tell right away. He asked God a question in the beginning of it. Why have you forsaken me? And then in the middle, he says, you have answered me. And he points out that he is there for Israel, for the Gentiles for all nations, for people that have not even yet been born. And so even all the way back in Psalms 22, God's plan was that Jesus would die, not only for the Jews, Paul puts it this way, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile, but, but that he would die for even the people, Jews and Gentiles, who have not been born yet, which is you and I. So Gentiles would have been saved, the gospel would be preached throughout the world, the gospel wouldn't have changed, um, maybe we would have looked a little bit more Jewish. The church might have looked a little more Jewish. Uh, so we do know that they were cast out temporarily. It says blindness. It says in, in um, let me go ahead and go there. Let me make sure I'm quoting this one, um, this one correctly. Uh, talking about Israel and God blinding them, but bringing them back in. In Romans chapter 11, I think it's verse 28. Let me just make sure of that. And then I'll go ahead and um, let's see. Yeah, it's not 28. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, all right, it's verse 25. So let me go ahead and bring you in on this, um, Jari, and I'll show you. So it says here, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all, will, so all Israel will be saved as it is written. So God's plan has never been to abandon Israel. They are going to come back as a nation, find him as their Messiah. So it, it, we don't know exactly what the chain differences would have looked like, but it certainly would have looked different 
than what we have today. The parable of the Great Supper, I think, speaks of that, where Jesus talks about those who are invited who don't come, and then you go out in the highways and the byways and you invite anybody in that wants to come uh, to the Great Supper, and God has definitely done that. All right. Thank you, Jari. I appreciate you, and I appreciate your question. We have another question here from Matt Grossman. Uh, Matt says, let me bring it in here. Big question, Facebook. Facebook allows you more room. So let's go ahead and do that. All right, so Matt says, the Bible says there is no government authority that's not from God. So we should submit to it, barring things counter, um, bearing things counter to scripture. So did you think God is okay with a government or states that punish criminals by death? Should we support this as just punishment? I have always been in support of it, but recently rethinking it. Uh, all right, so Matt, a couple of things uh, come to mind. Uh, first of all, yeah, the Bible says that God puts governments in place. There can be completely corrupt governments that hopefully will be replaced. And I think that this speaks of almost every government that's out there, that they're gonna make rules and pass rules for your peace, so you wanna pray for them and submit to them. As far as capital punishment goes, you know, God had capital punishment in the law, right? For Israel. They were to be, they were, they were a uh, theocracy ruled by God. And if there were certain things that you did, there was corporate punishment that came along with it. However, it's interesting that at times they never did it and they didn't do it. David should have been put to death, but David wasn't put to death. Others should have been put to death and they weren't put to death. Um, so I think that we should be merciful, as merciful as we can be. And I think that governments should be just. And I think that sometimes it's just to give someone a death sentence. And sometimes it's not. And we want to be the most merciful of all people. There are consequences to certain things. So I, I do think that horrific, awful crimes should have the death penalty with them. I believe that. Now, like you, hey, I'm willing. If I, if I see something in scripture that makes me think differently, then I'll change my mind like you as you're rethinking this. Um, but because, just because governments have been put in place by God and are there to protect you, certainly it doesn't mean that God agrees with everything they do or that we're supposed to agree with everything we do. The whole context of that statement was so that we would pray for them and submit to them because they're here for our peace. All right? So I don't think that that means that we have to agree with everything that they agree on. And if you make a decision, um, I don't think that... Uh, the death penalty is right, well then you can have that decision. You can, you can make that uh, decision. Certainly it can, be, it can be pushed too far. You gotta protect those who are falsely accused and that happens, right? There are people who die that are falsely accused because they are put to death and so you wanna protect that. Um, so you, you just see all kinds of injustice take place. So we want to be obedient to the government, but by no means, Matt, does it mean that we have to agree with them um, 100%. All right, so thank you very much for your question. I really appreciate it. 
It's good to see you guys. If, you, if you're joining us for the very first time, we're really glad you're here. We ask that you put the word question in front of your question and then write out your question and put it in the comment section and we will get to it in the order that your questions have been given. I have another question here that I want to go to before we continue on uh, with our questions online. And this is, what is the difference between mercy and grace? So there's mercy, grace, and justice. Mercy, justice, we'll start with justice. Justice is when you get what you deserve, not either good or bad, right? And so God is merciful to us because we deserved punishment. We deserved separation, but God in his mercy has given us grace, undeserved favor. So mercy is when we don't get what we deserve, and that's in a bad way, right? We deserve death, but God's merciful to us and doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace is when we get undeserved favor. So God gives us something that we don't deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve in a sense of judgment, and grace is when God gives us something that we don't deserve. And we walk both in mercy and grace. And when it comes to mercy, as I said, we wanna be the most merciful that we can possibly be. So we wanna focus our attention in on the, the mercy you give is the mercy you receive. So we wanna be the most merciful. We wanna focus our attention on that. We also wanna be like God and give grace. We want to give undeserved favor to the people that are around us. And I used to love to do that with my kids when they were small, uh, trying to get them used to what God is like, um, giving them grace just out of the blue. They expected that they would have punishment, but just giving them grace. It's a good thing for us to do, all right? So if you're new and you're joining us here, it's good to see you. We take questions and we look at them at the lens, uh, through the lens of scripture that we can know what we believe. If you have a question, then write the word question in front of your question, write out your question, read it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit your question. It is good to see you guys and to see, I hope that God's doing all kinds of things uh, to help you out. Uh, I see a prayer request here. Um, so someone has tested positive for COVID. So be praying for them, would you? And um, I'll, I'll do that here in just a moment. All right. So we have another question here. And this is, um, what happens when we are born again? So we receive Jesus and we are given the right to become a child of God. So when you are born again, you are adopted into the family of God. God makes you his child. He also changes you. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away and behold, everything has become new. And your spirit is brought to life. Jesus said in John chapter three, you must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He said you've gotta be born of the flesh and water. The water there is amniotic fluid. It becomes very clear when you read it in context. In fact, let me just go ahead and go to uh, John chapter three, and we're, we'll go ahead and take a look at this. So in John chapter three, let me go and put the scriptures up on the screen for you guys. 
So in John chapter 3, it says, uh, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the synagogue. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, what must um, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said, most assuredly I say to you, unless you are born again, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So here, Nicodemus is kind of being glib with Jesus. Um, he knows you're not going to crawl back into your mother's womb. So Jesus' response is, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So some believe that the water there is baptism. It's not. It becomes clear what it is in just a moment. You've got to be born of water and the spirit. He says then that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So the flesh is the amniotic fluid when you are born and the spirit is when your spirit is brought back to life. When Adam and Eve sinned, they died. God said, on the day you eat it, you will die. They didn't just start to die physically, they died spiritually. And so that when a baby is born, he's born with a sin nature and his spirit is dormant. And when you are born again, your spirit is brought to life. Jesus goes on to say, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And then he talks about the wind blows where it wishes and you hear not the sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Jesus says in chapter four of John that, that the day is coming when men will worship him in spirit and in truth. It also says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So you have to have your spirit brought to life. And if you've never asked Jesus into your life, if you never received him, first of all, you don't have to invite him in if you don't want to. But Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, you'll save it. But if you receive him in your life, you invite him in and he's looking for that invitation, then he'll come in. He'll take up residence inside of you. The Holy Spirit, your body will become the temple of the Holy Spirit. You will be transformed and changed. When I was born, to get born again, all of a sudden I had a desire for godly things. I had a desire uh, for the Word of God, learning, growing in the Word of God, having my life do what God wanted me to do. All right? So um, those are the things that happen to us when we're born again. Uh, the thief on the cross said, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. So his, that was how the thief on the cross got saved. The Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul told him, believe and be baptized and you and your whole, you and your whole family and you will have eternal life. Um, the um, Ethiopian eunuch said, there's water, what stops me from being baptized? So when you are committed and your heart says, I want you in my life, and then you make that decision, then you are born again. And if you have never invited Jesus into your life, you can do it right now. Right where you are right now, you could say, Lord, I want you in. May God bless you in the name of Jesus as you invite him in and may God do a wondrous work inside of your life. All right, so thank you. That was a previous question that we had received here on our Truth Quest uh, Q&A. All right, we have another question here and um, I just wanna make sure that I'm not missing any, all right? 
So, yep. All right. So let me go ahead and get to this next question. Uh, okay. So it's from Anna. Anna says, um, or Annie, Annie says, a uh, question, if we are divorced, can we remarry? I was told depends on why you got divorced. Yeah, it depends on a few things. So Jesus said, in, in the day of Jesus, men were divorcing their wives so they could marry someone else. And they were giving them a letter of, of, of divorce with no reasons. And they were divorcing them for any reason that they, they could possibly think of. And this is treating the wife of your youth poorly. It's treating the woman that you are supposed to die for poorly when you just dismiss her like that. It's wrong. And so Jesus said, if a man divorces his wife for any other reason, except sexual immorality, then and he marries another, he's committing adultery. So if you divorce for sexual immorality, then you can remarry. Now, Paul took up this issue in Corinthians chapter seven. He said, Jesus said not to divorce, but I tell you, and he goes on to talk about unbelievers. If you are married to a non-believer and the non-believer wants to stay, then you're supposed to stay. If you're married to a non-believer who wants to leave, it says, let him go for you are called to peace and you are free. And I think that means free to remarry. And then it says, and, and then it talks about separating. If you separate, remain single or be reconciled. So that's where if you divorce someone and there is no sexual immorality, then you may be remaining single the rest of your life and, and not remarrying. If the, um, I, I, people try to make all kinds of excuses to get out of, out of marriages and you say, but I, but my marriage isn't good. Well, we weren't told just to do things in life because they're good. We want to do what God wants us to do. And I've seen people try to say that they have been abandoned because their wife left them um, or because their husband left them, but they're both Christians. Um, it's unfortunate, but if they're not a non-believer, then you remain unmarried. Now, if they remarry, then they have broken that marriage vow and that frees you up. Or if they get into a relationship and have sex in that relationship, then that frees you up to be able to remarry. So that can lead someone to say, I'm in a pretty miserable marriage. I'm going to go ahead and separate. I realize that when I do, my husband's going to find somebody else. And when he does, I'll be free to remarry. Now that might work. You may be able to go ahead and pull that off. But do you think you manipulated God? The Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. And I don't think trying to manipulate God is a good idea. I think instead we want to live our lives doing the very best thing that we can, living wholeheartedly um, for him. All right. So yeah, it does depend on why, um, why you got divorced, but it also depends on what's happening um, with your partner now. Um, and of course, it, let's just say that you divorce and then they die. Then you're, you would be free to marry someone else as well because you wouldn't be committing adultery anymore. All right, Annie. Thank you very much. I hope that answers your question and I hope that you have a good day. If you're joining us here, we look at questions through the lens of scripture. 
Our desire is to know what the Bible has to say, that we can know what we believe. And um, we, can, uh, we can then search the scriptures to find those things out. So we do have another question here. And let's see. Um, yeah, we have another question here. Uh, does Acts 2.38 teach that baptism is necessary for salvation? Acts 2.38. Let's go ahead and open that up. All right. So we have Acts 2.38. Let me go ahead and get this, and then I'll put it up on the screen for you. All right. So Acts 2.38 says, let me go ahead and get this up. All right. Um, so Peter's preaching, this is the message of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit has come down upon the, um, the 120 in the upper room. Peter is suddenly filled with the Spirit and he preaches just a great sermon. He gives the gospel, he's straightforward, he doesn't pull any punches, and then he says this, then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is that you and your children and all who are afar off, as many as the Lord will call. So the question here is, when he says that you, um, when he says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, right? Let me read that again as it says it. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. It is the remission of sins from the repenting, which is the change of life. You're now going to live for God. You're inviting him in. You're no longer going to live for yourself. Or is it baptism? So the Bible says, believe and you will be saved. Those who call out upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible says, believe and be baptized and you will be saved. Here, repent and be baptized and you will for the remission of sins. But it never says, be baptized and you will be saved. It's always connected with believing, with repenting. No, I believe that repentance is something that Christians are supposed to do. But we know that, that, that baptism cannot save you because the Bible says that. It says we are saved by faith through grace, not of any works, lest any man should boast. That means that you don't have to speak in tongues to be saved. You don't have to join a church to be saved. You don't have to take the sacraments to be saved. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. And anything else that people would like to try to add in to say um, that you have to do in order to be um, in order to be saved. Uh, the um, there are churches that believe in baptismal regeneration. They also believe that there are some churches that believe that you have to be baptized by someone who's baptized by someone who's baptized by someone who's baptized by one of the apostles. And then once that happens, you're able to baptize. The Bible gives no such no such descriptions. Paul also said in, I think it's 2 Corinthians, might be 1st, um, I didn't baptize any of you guys. Oh, except for this person, that person, and he names a few. And then he says, for God did not send me to baptize, but he sent me to preach the gospel. If, if baptism was the gospel, Paul would have never have said that. God didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So our call is to preach the gospel, and once they receive, then they are baptized. So if you're listening to this and you've never been baptized, then you want to make sure that you do get baptized. All right? 
So again, thank you very much for your question. Uh, if you're new here, if you're just joining us, we want to welcome you. I hope you guys are really blessed. If you have a question for us, write the word question out, then write your question, then reread it, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it in the comment section and we'll get to it in order. Um, we've got a couple of other questions that are loaded up here. Uh, we have another question. Um, what is the gospel? So um, Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. Most of us know and understand that the gospel means what is the good news? By the way, this quest question was a lot more complex with the person wrote it. I just kind of boiled it down. Um, there, were, there was some nuance to the question and I'll try to make sure um, that I hit that nuance, all right? So um, I'll get all of those nuances. Um, so the gospel, we're told what it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me go ahead and go there and I'll put it up on the screen for you guys and we will take a look at it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right in the very beginning. Uh, let me go ahead and put it on the screen for you. It says, um, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preach to you, which, I, which you also receive, by which you stand, by which you are saved. So they received the, they, Paul preached it to them, they received it, they stand in it, and now they're saved by it. That's how you respond to the gospel. You hear the gospel, when it's preached, you receive it, you stand in it, and you're saved by it. It is, um, he says in, in Romans 1.18, I think it's Romans 1.18, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And then he goes on to say, if you hold fast to which I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. So Paul didn't come up with the gospel. And so there are people who claim that he did, but Paul did not come up with the gospel. The rest of the, the Bible, the disciples taught the gospel as well. Um, but now he's going to tell us what the gospel is, um, which was delivered first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So the Old Testament foretold that Jesus died for our sins. The Bible says that when Paul would go into a city, he would go into the synagogue and he would reason with them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And when you are presenting the gospel, you want to talk about it being foretold. You want to find those passages like Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus giving his life for our sins and God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And then uh, you can, uh, you, you are now giving the gospel. Now there's two other parts to the gospel. It says, and that he was buried and that he rose again according to the scriptures. Now, these are, interestingly enough, what we call part of the indisputable facts. There are several indisputable facts about Jesus. There was a time when people used to dispute these, but over time, they got to the point where they're not disputing them anymore. And um, that is number one, that Jesus existed. There are people who are mythicists today. They believe that Jesus was a myth, but virtually there are no scholars that believe that. All scholars, when you, when you go back and you take a look at, when you go back and you take a look at um, 
what happened with Jesus, the life of Jesus, what happened afterwards, how fast the gospel went around the world, what the disciples did, then there's no doubt that Jesus existed. There's also secular historians, and not just a few of them. There's Jewish, Roman, that talk about Jesus and being crucified under Pontius Pilate. So the crucifixion is also an indisputable fact. The burial is an indisputable fact. That the, the empty tomb is an indisputable fact. That the disciples believe that Jesus rose from the dead and believe that they saw him. Which, and notice the way I say that, they believed it. So that's the indisputable fact. Even non-believers are going to say the disciples believe that he rose from the dead. That's why they were willing to sacrifice their lives and give them to Christ and give them to Jesus. And so people today who say that there are no, uh, people today who say there are, um, there's, there's no evidence for the existence of Jesus or even for the gospel or for the empty tomb are wrong. These are, there's strong evidence for the empty tomb in these things. And um, that's what the gospel is. All right. So uh, we have another question from uh, Jari. Um, Jari says, future q and I'm going to go ahead and bring that in today. Um, Jari says, future Q&A, uh, their time in a new heaven and earth and the lake of fire they will be tormented day and night. Future Q&A. Jari, I'm sorry. I don't understand your question. Um, future Q&A, their time in new heaven, new earth, the lake of fire. Maybe you can resubmit your question, Jari. Read it a couple of times. Make sure um, that it makes sense. And I'll go ahead and bring your question in. All right. Um... So we have another question from Renee. And Renee says, um, good to see you, Renee, by the way. Good to have you here in our Q&A. Uh, Renee says, can we love the Lord and still sin? Unfortunately, yes. The question is, can we love the Lord, literally, I mean, genuinely be born again and live in sin? practice sin. So in Galatians chapter 6, I believe, there's a list of the deeds of the flesh. And at the end of it, it says that none who do those, these things will enter the king, who practice these things will enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm glad it doesn't say none who do those things because Christians do all kinds of things, but the, by the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus, then we are forgiven and we are able to get our feet washed and to make things right with him. Remember when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet? They came to Peter, and Peter said, you'll not wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part in me. And I don't think he was telling him that if I don't wash your feet, you're not going to be saved, but that he wouldn't be in fellowship with him. So when you are a Christian and you have unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life, the first thing it does is break the fellowship. If you are a genuine Christian, you want to do what God wants you to do. You just might not be able to. You just, because of our flesh, so you end up you end up sinning. There are Christians who believe in a part of the holiness movement. Pentecostals are part of it. The Church of um, God, um, Anderson, is also a part of it, that believe that you can get to the point where you never sin. But the Bible says that our flesh struggles against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. 
so that we do not do the things that we wish. And so I wish we could get to a place where we didn't sin as believers, but I think that that day will come when we enter into his presence, when we are, when we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and, and then we will. So yes, you can love the Lord, you can be a genuine Christian, and you can still sin. I think um, not only that, you're going to. The Bible says in John chapter one, that um, if we say we don't have any sin, then we lie and the truth is not in us. I'm just gonna see if I can find that verse really quick. Um, so, all right, yeah, so I'm not, yeah, I haven't been able to find it, but it does say, if you say uh, that you have no sin, you're a liar. So someone today who says, I haven't sinned, I, I heard someone preach you one time that said, I haven't sinned in 12 years. Well, you just blew your record because you lied. But they had sinned in the last 12 years and probably part of that was pride, but they did believe in the holiness movement that they could come to a place where they no longer sinned. Um, it does say at the end of 1 John, if anyone is in Christ, he does not sin and the evil one cannot touch him. Uh, the phrase there, does not sin really means practicing sin. We've got to read it in context and you've got to read it in the context of the rest of the Bible. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate your question, Renee. Uh, we have a question from Jari. Uh, question, is there time? Oh, yeah, all right. Yeah, let me go ahead and bring it in. Thank you, Jari, good to see you again. Is there time in the new heavens and the new earth? Um, I don't think so. I think that God lives outside of the realm of time. And I think that we're gonna go into an existence where there will not be time. We will be in eternity. And we're gonna learn how not to live in time. That's why when, when people think of heaven and they go, I'm gonna be bored after 10,000, thousand years, you know, a million years, I'm gonna be bored and I'm just gonna wish that I don't exist. If you saw the good place, then you know that that is that kind of thinking. There's gonna come a time when you just wish you didn't exist and so you're just gonna walk out of the frame and you're not gonna exist anymore. Um, that's not true. In, in, in God, there is fullness of joy. In, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. We are going to be complete and we're going to be in eternity with him. And I think that God created the time matter, um, space time matter continuum. And we know that they work together. If you go the speed of light, then time speeds up or slows down. And I think all of that comes into play in the creation of the universe. The Bible says that God shook out the universe like a blanket. And as he did that, everything was moving at an incredible speed. And I think that accounts for what we're seeing in the light trails and all of those things. Um, and I think that time is a part of that. So God created, time and he is outside of time and that's one of the reasons it's so hard to figure God out and why as a kid I used to lay on my front in the grass on my front yard in Albuquerque not in Tucson because we generally don't have grass here that um, and look up at the sky I would think of God and I would think he has to have a beginning but he can't have a beginning but he has to have a beginning but he can't have a beginning because I wasn't thinking of God outside of time all right Thank you, Jari, for your, your question. I appreciate that. If you're new here, we wanna welcome you. If you have a question, then write the word question down and then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, 
and then go ahead and submit your question. We have a question from Annika. Annika, Annika, good to see you. She says, what do you believe qualifies a person to be a pastor? So I think first of all, there is the call of God on his life. And the Bible says, and, and a pastor, one of the qualifications of a pastor is that he has to be able to teach. And the Bible says, let not many of you desire to be teachers because you incur a stricter judgment, which is a scary passage for pastors. I don't know that the bar is set any higher for pastors, but one thing I do know is that pastors have to go over that bar. And, and, and so one of the qualifications is being able to teach. Um, there are other qualifications in Timothy and in Titus that talk about him being the, the husband of one wife. And so that would make it, um, that polygamy, um, not divorce, as some churches try to make it. If you're divorced, you can't be a pastor. Um, but, but there were people that were married to more than one wife. And, and in order to be a, an elder or a pastor, you, you couldn't be married to more than one wife. Um, has to be, um, has to be hospitable not given to much wine. Uh, there are some other things that are said in the Bible about the qualifications of what a pastor must do, but those are the things um, that, that he has to do. Uh, I don't know the exact passage, Annika, otherwise I would go there and look at all the qualifications um, that are there for him. Um, but I think those are the basics for what qualifies someone to be a pastor or not. Um, I do think there are pastors that are pastors that shouldn't be, and there are people that should be pastors that aren't. All right. So thank you very much, Annika. Uh, good to see you uh, as well, and good to see you too, Carl. Uh, saying hi. If you're new here, uh, then you can ask us a question by writing the word question, and then writing out your question, reread it a couple times, make sure uh, that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit that question. We have another question here from Keeping It Real. Keeping It Real, good to see you. Uh, Keeping It Real joins us from YouTube. Uh, so Keeping It Real says, uh, can you explain John 3.13? No one has ascended into heaven, but who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, is from heaven. All right, well, let's go there. Let's go to John 3.13. We'll take a look at it. And I will put it up on the screen for you guys as soon as I get it up. And we're going to read this and we're going to start a few verses back because reading things in context is one of the best ways uh, to be able to get it. So um, Jesus answered and said, so um, Nicodemus, so he's having some conversation with Nicodemus. This is the born again passage. Um, Nicodemus answered and said, how can these things be? Talking about a person being born of the spirit. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher? Go ahead and do it this way. Are you the teacher in Israel and uh, do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you of earthly things, how do you believe him? Uh, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Uh, now, which tells us that being born again is one thing, but heavenly things are another whole other thing. And then he says, now one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from, or no one has descended from heaven, he came down from heaven, 
that that is the son of man who is in heaven all right so um let me go back to your question here i wish i knew a little bit more about why you asked this question keeping it real um let me see if i can find that again there we go all right so i knew i wish i knew a little bit more about why you're asking this question there are a couple of things that people use this passage for a modalism is one of them um, but jesus is saying to nicodemus that he has come down from heaven and that he is going to ascend into heaven and he does that from the mount of olives in the beginning of the book of acts when the disciples are watching and he ascends up into heaven and when he died he also descended to preach to spirits that were in prison and to take a host of captives out of captivity and to br- and then ascended back up into heaven so jesus could be talking about these things but the way that this is worded here modalism is the teaching that there's that that there's that god is not three in one it's an anti-trinitarian teaching william branham who was here in tucson for a while and there's a large movement here in tucson of brahmanites taught modalism he taught that there was not a a father a son and a holy spirit but that god just changed his mask he was the father but he was the son and the spirit didn't exist when he was the spirit the father and son didn't exist when he was the son the father and spirit didn't exist and this is one of the verses that they use to try to teach modalism okay so let me me read it again here and i'll show you this um no one has ascended into heaven but he who came down from heaven that is the son of man who is in heaven so they say well here he is the son of man's on earth but he talks about the son of man being in heaven and he talks about the father who is in heaven and so trying to make him the same person but that's not what the passage is saying here at all it's simply talking about jesus knowing the way of salvation he's questioning how can these things be the person that has descended from heaven knows these things we're learning what eternal life is directly from jesus and that's what the passage is trying to say and has nothing to do about the trinity and the bible clearly teaches um what do you do with the passage that says the father gave his son of the father gave his son so jesus when he was a father gave himself and when jesus prayed to the father was he praying to no one when the father spoke from heaven and jesus was on the earth was he throwing his voice there are problems with modalism and i'm not saying that someone who believes in modalism can't be saved but i'm saying it's possible they're not because they're believing in different god you're believing one that does not have the qualities and the characteristics of the biblical god all right so thank you very much keeping it real for your question i appreciate that and we have another question here from uh, wayne rockin red dillinger uh and and he says how are you wayne good to see you by the way wayne says do you believe that the shroud of turin is actually uh the burial cloth that covered jesus the shroud of turin is interesting and i i they've done some scientific studies that have brought it back to the 12th century but then there's also been studies of the pollen that's on it there this body was laid in the shroud then there were flowers that were put around it then the shroud was folded over and then this image somehow got on there and they don't know how it got on there if it's a fake if somebody faked it it was a long time ago and they did a good job of faking it and um now when jesus was raised from the dead 
it says that he got up and folded up, that John looked at it and saw that his headpiece was folded and off to the side. So some say that Jesus then was wrapped in the body and had a headpiece on covering his face, but it doesn't mean they couldn't have had the Shroud of Turin over him and then put the, the face piece over him as well. <clears throat> who knows how all of those things worked and, and maybe those who are smarter than me or more informed about Jewish burial could be able to answer that question. Um, but I think the jury is out on that. Um, I used to just say no, but I think the jury is out on it and it may indeed be real. And um, I plan on doing a hot topic on it in the future. Um, I'm glad you reminded me of it. I've been, been kind of considering which hot topics to do and maybe I'll do one here on the Stroud of Turin uh, pretty soon because I think it's extremely interesting and it's possible that it actually is the burial uh, cloth of Christ. All right, Wayne, thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. If you are new here, it's good to see you. Really glad you're here. Hope that you're blessed by the time that you spend here. If you have a question for us, then write the word question in front of your question, write your question out, reread it a couple of times, and then go ahead and submit it, and we will take your question. Uh, I hope I'm not passing by your question here. Uh, your questions here, every so often I hear someone say that I didn't quite get their questions. Um, all right, so we have, uh, we have another question here from Ocean Discovery. Ocean Discovery, is Mormon belief a form of modalism? No, um, not at all. So what Mormons believe is that Yahweh, or Elohim as they call him, was a human on another planet just like us. And he lived such an exceptional life that he got to be a God over his own planet. And if you live an exceptional life, you get to be God over your own planet. So that's completely different. And um, I don't know what they believe about God being a Trinity, but I do know that they are not serving Yahweh because Yahweh was never a man, never lived on another planet. Um, it, it also ties into the polygamy uh, of, um, and maybe polygamy is not the right thing to point to, but that, that, you, that Elohim is living with his wife and they're making spirit babies. They're having sex for all of eternity. And so who this wife of Elohim is, is a question. Um, there's a lot of really strange things that Mormons believe and they're trying to rebrand themselves today and trying to push those things away. And a lot of times it's interesting, Mormons don't even know what they teach. Sometimes the elders that will come to your door don't even know what they believe or what they teach. Um, and oftentimes, or, or, or they've been told to deny it and to sound like they are more mainstream. But no, it's not a form of modalism. Um, they're, there are certain Pentecostal groups that believe in, in, in modalism, um, as well as the Brahmanites who believe in it as well. William Branham was a faith healer, died in 65, I think, in an auto accident. Um, and there are a lot of things that they say about, about William Branham. Um, he denied, yeah, he denied the Trinity. It's interesting, he taught the Trinity up until the 60s, and then he, then he denied the Trinity. 
All right. So thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. Uh, well, let's go ahead and take a look at one more. We're coming to the end of our hour here. And uh, let's see, we have another one on here. Yep. Um, what is easy believism and is it biblical? So this is, again, this was a more lengthy question that was left on one of our, our former uh, Q and A's and I went ahead and boiled it down. Um, so what is easy believism and is it biblical? So this is kind of like one of the things of people today, when you say, if you receive Jesus, you're going to be born again. All you have to do is invite him in. And they'll say that's easy believism, that you've really got to repent. And to them, repent means that you do good things. You stop doing bad things. You're now doing good things. That would be works. And so when they fight against easy believism, they are fighting against, they're trying to bring the concept of works, that there's going to be a, a, some kind of a change or that you're going to repent first. Well, repentance, yes, you do have to repent first, but repentance is pivoting. It means that you desire to no longer live the way you used to live and now you want to live the, the way you, you want to live. That's what repentance is. It's not you actually having done the change yet. The change happens when you are born again and God transforms you. So um, easy believism, the battle against easy believism, and, and, I, and I do think there is such a thing as easy believism. You raise your hand to be saved. And if you've raised your hand there, you're saved now. No, there has to be transformation. You, you've got to see the difference in your life. And just declaring that someone is saved because they raise their hand or pray a prayer does not make them saved. That would be easy believism. There will be evidence that they made a genuine commitment to Christ when they follow through. Does everybody that raises their hands to pray their prayer come to Christ? No, not everybody does. Um, but a lot of people follow through and are genuinely born again when they do that. All right. So that's what, uh, um, easy believe is it biblical? Uh, what they say is easy believism is biblical, meaning that if you repent, you don't want to live the way you used to live. You want to now live for God. You're pivoting and you receive Jesus. You invite him in and you're transformed. Um, that is not easy believism and that is biblical. So what they try to say easy believism is not. A lot of times those who teach against easy believism are trying, they teach against altar calls as well, giving people a chance to get saved. And look, you don't want to give an altar call, don't give it, but you got to give people a chance to get saved. At some point you have to teach them and give them a chance. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate you guys joining us today. Uh, for our Q&A. It's been good to see all of you guys. I hope that you have a great day. Uh, we'll be back on Saturday for another Q&A. Uh, I hope you guys are blessed. I hope that you stay close to Jesus. We have a service in two hours. We'd love to have you guys join us for it. Uh, we are going to be talking about what Paul meant when he said, me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We're in our in-depth line-by-line, verse-by-verse study in the book of Philippians, and we're still in chapter one. This is our fourth study in the book of Philippians. We're really diving into it, and um, we would love to have you join us. Uh, you can come here. To, uh, if you're in Tucson, you can go to our East Campus at 6 o'clock, our West Campus at 7.15, or you can join us live online at 6 o'clock. And um, I really appreciate you guys. I'm going to go ahead and sign out. We'll see you. You guys are welcome. Uh, I, I really do appreciate you and I appreciate all the encouragement that you guys put here um, when I go back and I'm, I'm rereading 
um, what was taking place while I was answering the questions. And I just appreciate your guys' encouragement so much. All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and sign out. I'm finished. I love you guys. We will see you 